Tonight we're going to continue our study in the gospel according to John. Last week I taught in part John 6, verses 62 through 65 by way of the doctrine of the ascension and seating of Christ. When the clock told 7.45, I was about to see how the session of Christ related to the doctrine of the resurrection. I want to continue that study, but first uh, we'll have a brief review. And uh, beginning all of our services, we like to use First John time, First John 1, 9 time specifically, as we cite our sins to God and thus become teachable. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study your word. Guide us now and direct us. For us in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, verses 6, 62 through 65, I'll read. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. All right, I want to review, I want to review some of that learned and then begin new material at point 13 on page 3. Doctrine of the Ascension and Seating of Christ Review. Definition and a Concept. The bodily transfer of our Lord from the earthly to the heavenly sphere of existence is the doctrine of ascension and seating of Christ. That's how it's defined. Both the ascension and seating were accomplished in a resurrection body. The primary account of the ascension appears in Acts 1, 9 through 11 and Luke 24, 51, as we noted. The tertiary reference in Mark 16, 19 is rendered questionable by inferior textual evidence. Mark 16, 9 through 20 does not appear in the better manuscripts. However, the ascension is assumed as the foundation for numerous statements in the New Testament. For example, Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 8.11, as we noted. In fact, there is hardly a New Testament writer who does not give testimony, either direct or indirect, to the truth of the ascension. According to Luke, the event took place approximately 40 days after the resurrection. And we saw that in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Luke also tells us to look uh, for at Bethany as the place of uh, the event. Bethany is near on the Mount of Olives. And that's when they saw, where they saw, excuse me, where they saw the disappearing of Christ into a cloud. And we read about that in Luke 24, 50 and 51 and Acts 1, 9, 10, 11 and 12. 
The ascension was anticipated certainly in the Old Testament and we saw documentation of that in Psalm 68, 18, Psalm 110, verse 1, and then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. The ascension was prophesied in John 6, 58, John 6, 62, and John 20, verse 17. Alright, the significance of the ascension is manifold. For Christ himself, the ascension meant exaltation to a position of glory as the victorious Lord, the head of the church, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 and Philippians 2, 9. The ascension also made possible the coming, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the believer as our helper. And there he would convince of sin uh, and teach us the word of God. John 16, 7 and 8, 13, uh, John uh, 16, verse 26, and Acts 2, 33. The ascension signifies our identification with Christ. Our Lord is seated with the Father in the heavenlies, and we are identified with our Savior in the heavens. Ephesians 2, 6 and Colossians 3, 1 through 3. The ascension initiated Christ's high priestly advocacy before the Father on the believer's behalf, a truth which is given major treatment, as we saw in the epistles to the Hebrews. Uh, for example, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, 6, 20, 7, 22 through 25, and 9, 24, which we read and studied in, well, some detail. All right, Christ will return to the earth in the same manner in which he ascended, says Acts 1.11. The resurrection body of Jesus was capable of both horizontal and vertical travel. He went through walls, passing also through two heavens to the third heaven. And we talked a little bit about the three heavens, as you may remember. All right, the ascension establishes the authority of our Lord to intercede for us. Romans 8.34 The power and perfection of his total being and work is portrayed in the ascension. His ascension is related to our Lord's unique sacrifice for sin, says Hebrews 10.12. The ascension is related to our need to keep ourselves occupied with Christ. And that we can find in Hebrews 12.2. And we talked a little bit about Occupation with Christ is one of the problem-solving devices. The ascension verifies the efficacy of Christ on the cross. The ascension begins the ultimate defeat and process of the capitulation of Satan in the angelic conflict. So finally, as far as review points are concerned, the ascension is related to the doctrine of the resurrection, and now we begin new material. All right, in general, there are two returns from the dead. The two are resuscitation and resurrection. Resuscitation, as used in this doctrine, is a coming back from the dead to ultimately participate in either the first or second resurrections. Two examples of resuscitation are Paul at Lystra, 
while on his first missionary journey. And we reviewed that, of course, in Acts 14, 19 through 20, comparing it with 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, and the resuscitation of Lazarus in John 11, 11 through verse 40, 45. So in part, let me read, first of all, Acts 14, 19 through 20. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So on that journey, in that event, uh, we find what many consider to be the death of Paul and his resuscitation uh, to further work for the Lord. I did not read you something that uh, H.A. Ironside said in Colonel R.B. theme and how they have written of this event. Plus, I have taught in teaching the book of Second Corinthians a comparison of Acts 14, 19, and 20 and following. So let me read you, uh, and this is somewhat of a, of a review, as you may recall. But Second Corinthians 12, 1, I read through verse 5. When Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about things he could boast about, but he wasn't. But this was certainly one of them. So he tells them a little bit of the story of him dying, going to heaven, meeting someone he knew on earth at one time. And they had a little conversation, but he wasn't at liberty to tell about the events that he saw and heard. So uh, again, good old H.A. Ironside in his book. Uh, writing about the, the book of Acts and also about the church at Corinth. He tells this story in a very vivid and interesting way. Before, let me go ahead and read since we are reviewing uh, something that we have studied previously, but it's still part of the doctrine of the resurrection. Second Corinthians 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 should be enough to tweak your memories. He says, if I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go to visions and revelations from the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except for my weaknesses. So again, uh, I recall what H.A. Ironside and Colonel R.B. Thiem have written concerning Paul stoning at Lystra, and the possible nexus of Acts 14, 19, and 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 5. Quoting now, He was in paradise and heard unspeakable things which is not lawful for a man to utter. How long was he there? We do not know. We do read that as the body lay there, the disciples continue to quote now from A.J. Ironsides. We do read that as the body lay there, the disciples stood round about, evidently making plans for the funeral, probably with tears streaming down, saying, 
What shall we do? We shall have to lay his poor broken body away. But he suddenly rose up. And then the good old A.J. says, I should have liked to have seen that. Alright, Jesus comes to the aid of the two sisters of Lazarus. Again, an example of resuscitation. One more. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 32, reading through verse uh, 45, let's say. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, that is, she saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming, she fell at his, fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. Troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take take away the stone, he said. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man. You remember there's Mary and Martha, both sisters. By this time, there's been a bad odor, for he had been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Then dropping down to verse 43, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Alright, continuing now in our study of the, again, resurrections, let's look at the order of the resurrections. That is to say, the events in, in the order that they appear. Okay, here we go. The resurrection as it relates to Christ and his followers is that point in time where a new body is received and death is no more. There are four such resurrections in this classification. And uh, these four make up what is known as the first resurrection. The resurrection of unbelievers is called the second, the second resurrection. The four resurrections for the believer are Christ on the first Easter, believers at the rapture, Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs at the second advent, and millennial saints at the end of the millennium. The resurrection as it relates to the unbeliever occurs at the great white throne where unbelievers are resurrected to receive a body, to receive a body capable of everlasting punishment in a place designed for the devil and his demons. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. 
Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice, it wasn't prepared for mankind. Mankind has to elect to go there by failing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Alright, here we go with the chart. And it's in your lesson plan. So let's review the order of the resurrection's chart. And as you can see, the first is Christ. Not Colonel Thiem likes to call that Battalion 1. Then you have the church at the rapture, Battalion 2. Then you have tribulation and Old Testament saints to determine who goes into the millennium. And that's really not a resurrection per se, because that's just a new body so that people who do, as believers, follow the Lord into the millennium, have the capability of of living in perfect environment, while at the same time capable of producing children. And, of course, in a resurrection body, there's no capability of procreation, but uh, so it's a little unusual. It's not really a resurrection order or one of the resurrections. And then uh, when then do the saints who lived in the millennium get their resurrection bodies? Well, you see there, uh, after the millennium and uh, the great white throne, probably just before the great white throne, who knows, but uh, they are capable there of receiving their resurrection body and they live on into eternity future. So, so much then for a chart showing the order of the resurrection, showing the destruction of heaven and earth, and showing the great white throne. Alright, let's go on now with the order of the resurrections. The resurrection is one of the very basic doctrines of Christianity and must be understood for spiritual growth. Uh, and I give you Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the principles of the throne, I'm sorry, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, said the anonymous writer, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now verse 2, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. In other words, move on to those things that bring about spiritual maturity. Right, oh, excuse me. The resurrection of believers is part of the good news of the gospel. That's certainly made clear in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, 3, and 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the good news which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again, and on the third day all that was done or provided for us according to the Scripture. Buried, and then he rose again the third day, the resurrection. So the importance of the resurrection is emphasized by Paul, emphasized by Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, 12, reading all the way through verse 17. 
But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And this was a problem for the Greeks. They just couldn't see a resurrection body uh, being of any value whatsoever because they hated that body because it brought about so many bad things just as Paul himself admits when he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And he wants them to know it's going to be completely different. It's not going to be like our bodies today. Though some uh, like to misteach, if you will, that, oh, my resurrection body is going to be like I was when I was 28 years old, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's changed. It's like uh, the seed that's put in the ground and later becomes an oak tree. The oak tree is quite different from the seed that went in the ground. Likewise, so also will be our resurrection body. Let me just go ahead and read you 12, continue to read, all the way through 17. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead then are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Futile. You are still in your sins. And of course we know Christ was raised. Plenty of documentation of that, by the way. All right, the resurrection of Jesus is part of the strategic victory in the angelic conflict. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 20, reading through verse 25, verse 20 through 25. But if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. And it is true, that's what happened. First class conditional particle. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The resurrection is a direct result of perfect justification. Romans 4.25 Who Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised because of our justification delivered for our offenses and raised because of our justification. Better translation. All right, John 11, 24, 25, and 26. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asked the question, Believest thou this? And everyone someday will have to answer that question. Do you believe it? And if you do, good for you. And if you don't, shame on you. All right, the, res- the agents of the resurrection are two. First of all, God the Father. Colossians 2.12, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Peter 1.21. And I'll read. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. Again, God the Father. And again, God the Father, first Thess 1.10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. First Peter one twenty one. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. All right, the second agent, God the Holy Spirit. Romans eight eleven and First Peter three eighteen. Let's take on Romans first. But if the Spirit of Him who raised raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, and He does. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive, your mortal bodies by His Spirit who dwells in you. And then 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So the resurrection of Christ is the basis for our confidence and ecstatic happiness in eternity future. Now let's look at 1 Peter 1, 3, 4, and 5. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in this great mercy he has given us new birth unto and or into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, as earlier noted, there are two general types of resurrection. They are called the first and the second resurrection. See how the resurrections fit on our regular dispensation chart. First resurrection, of course, for believers. Second resurrection to judgment for unbelievers. And you can find them there on the chart, which we have looked at and studied on numerous occasions. But if you haven't been with us on those studies, go to the Internet, Pastor Mary's study books found at... uh, Again, uh, on our website, westbankbiblechurch.com and just drop down to Pastor Mary's study books and find the Doctrine of Dispensations. Plus, plus we have a Doctrine of Dispensation on the podcast where you can understand the chart in great detail, I hope. Now then, so much then. 
for our previous study in the book of John. We're just going to continue right on as we move to John 6, 6, chapter 6, verses 7 through 69. So let's uh, kind of break that down into chewable pieces, so to speak, and take a look at John 6, 67, 68, and 69 in the NIV. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Good old Peter. Let's take a look at a few quick points about the life of Peter the Apostle. Let's introduce it. Alright, point one under introduction. Peter was one of the earliest and most prominent disciples of Jesus. Several names are given him. The Hebrew name, Simeon. The Greek name, Simon. The Aramaic name, Cephas, or Cephas. And its Greek counterpart, Peter, or Petros, or Petra. More to that later. All right, let's look at Simeon. In Acts chapter 15, verse 14, Simeon had declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles and take out of them a people for his name. And then Matthew 4.18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, They were commercial fishermen. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Andrew brought Peter to see Jesus. It has often been called Operation Andrew. And I know Billy Graham uses that quite well. And he has a little teaching about Operation Andrew. And how each and every member going to the crusade needs to bring their brother. Just as old uh, Andrew went and got Peter. So you need to get your friends and bring them to uh, see the movie and learn how to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or go to one of his great evangelical meetings of which I've been to several, not the least of which was the one I went to in L.A. in the Coliseum. Marvelous experience. All right, John one forty two, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt be called Cephas, or Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone, a stone or a chip off the old block. All right, Cephas is an Aramaic name often used to designate Peter as a disciple of Christ. Although Cephas soon gave way to Peter, as an apostle and leader of the early church, we find Petros, is used in lieu of Kephos. Both Kephos and Petros mean a small rock chipped off a much larger rock. And the larger rock is a Petra in the Greek. So Peter is translated from the Greek word Petros, meaning a piece of rock chipped from a larger rock. And that was the name given to Peter by Christ. Let me read Matthew six sixteen. 17, and then we'll drop down to verse 18. 
And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter Petros, and upon this rock, new word Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Matthew sixteen eighteen, there is an obvious play on the words Peter, Petros, a proper name denoting a piece of a rock, and rock, Petra, a large rocky mass. The spiritual body, the church, mentioned here for the first time, is built upon the divinely revealed fact about Christ as confessed by Peter. So as men are made aware of and acknowledge his person and work, they become members of the body of Christ, the church. All right, origin and early life. Peter's original home was Bethsaida, a fishing fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, and it's not far from Capernaum. It was there, there, it was there, Peter and his brother Andrew docked their vessel. Alright, uh, notice uh, his brother Andrew was with him when the vessel was docked. Now Philip was a, of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, says John 1.44. It was also near Capernaum, somewhere on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that Andrew and Peter first met their Lord. Matthew 4.18 and 19. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew were partners in the fishing business with Zebedee and his sons James and John. Compare Mark 1, 16, 17, and 18 with Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through verse 11. So let's see what we've got here. First of all, Mark 1, 16, 17, and 18. Now, as he walked by the as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway, right away, they forsook their nets and followed him. And I provided you a chart which shows the major cities surrounding the Sea of Galilee and the sea itself. All right, Peter's father Jonah was probably a fisherman, an occupation which Peter and his brother Andrew had followed. According to present standards, his education was limited, but he would have been able to read and write Aramaic and to speak some Greek, which was widely used in the cities of Galilee, though with a guttural Galilean accent. Peter and his brother Andrew were followers of John the Baptist, who first called their attention to Jesus. Peter, with the other disciples, accompanied Jesus from the scene of John the Baptist's ministry back to Capernaum. In all probability, they returned 
to their fishing for a brief time, although the Gospels do not state so directly. Alright, from the large number of disciples who followed him, Jesus much later chose twelve to be his intimate companions. The motives of Peter in following Jesus were initially as much personal as spiritual. Knowing that Jesus was recommended by an influential figure like John the Baptist, he saw him as a potential Messiah for the nation. Alright, let's take a look at Peter's life as a disciple. One one, Jesus' edification, excuse me, Jesus' education of Peter is illustrated by a number of episodes. Jesus began to teach Peter a new mode of life. Examples. In response to Peter's question concerning the payment of the temple tax, Jesus assured him that the true Israelites should be free from taxation. And then he begins to supply enough money to pay for himself and for Peter also. Let me read you uh, and refer you to the Doctrine of the Seventy Weeks, which is also on the internet. The Doctrine of the Seventy Weeks. When Peter asked Jesus whether he would forgive an annoying enemy for more than seven offenses, Jesus replied that he should forgive seventy times seven. Matthew eighteen twenty one and 22, which was an injunction that Peter would find hard to obey. 70 times 70 is 490 years, which certainly has eschatological applications. And you can see those in the doctrine of the 70 weeks and explained thoroughly uh, by Daniel chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27. Uh, and then uh, in the Doctrine of the 70th Week, you'll see one of the best explanations by Lewis Perry Chafer of uh, Daniel chapter 9, 24, 26, 27. All right, let's read Matthew 18, 21, and 22. And we slowly make our way to our invitation. Matthew eighteen twenty one and 22, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? She just saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. So Peter's surprise over the withered fig tree implies some incredulity concerning Jesus' power. Jesus promptly reminded him that he needed more faith. Mark 11, 21 and 22. There are all manner of eschatological nuances involved in these passages, uh, which we don't have time for here, but uh, certainly the body of information that I have put on the Internet will certainly help you. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 11, verse 20 and 21. And we're going to go ahead and read through 24. It says, And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree, which thou curseth, is withered away. And that, of course, refers to Israel and how they'll come back one day as a new tree, as they uh, will be part of Jesus' plan on earth during the millennium. 
an active force in evangelical efforts in the millennium and also, by the way, in the tribulation. And Jesus answered, or answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. A kingdom age promise, which also will be appropriate in the millennium. But not today, necessarily. We may see wonderful things happen because we pray. But uh, the definiteness, the definiteness of this declaration has better application when the Lord Himself is alive and well on planet Earth and in His millennial kingdom. And of course also as He offered His kingdom to Israel. Alright, let's read on. Peter objected to letting Jesus wash His feet at a certain time, but when Jesus told him that it was a necessary condition of fellowship, Peter revealed his real attitude by asking for a bath. John 13, verses 5 through 10. Certainly we've been through this, no doubt. And we've compared the nipto versus the luo uh, and the use of those words, two different words, but both translated washed. Our nipto in these passages refers to washing of hands and feet, and luo refers to a complete bath of the body. Nipto refers to rebound, in other words, confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. And luo refers to salvation faith, faith alone in Christ alone, just as Christ himself came and offered himself. And John says clearly, uh, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to read you 13, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 as we uh, move toward the end of this particular session. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash nipto my feet? Jesus answered and saith unto him, What shall I do? What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter, later. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash nipto my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not nipto, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. And Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed, luo, faith alone in Christ alone, needeth not to save, but to wash his feet, nipto. But it's clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. In other words, you got Judas Iscariot. Sad to say. Alright, Peter, it was one of the three chosen to watch with Jesus in Gethsemane, but fell asleep from weariness and sorrow. Matthew twenty-six thirty-seven through 40. And I think it's at this point in time we need to stop and uh, offer an in- invitation to anyone who may be without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. So if you are listening to this uh, podcast or maybe looking and watching and listening 
on the internet. Uh, you are in need, perhaps, of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And only you know whether you have or haven't. But I'm here to tell you about the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father except by me. So wherever you are, whatever you might be doing, you can simply tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word you will be saved. It just takes faith alone in Christ alone. Again, all by grace, all because we are all sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I'm going to pause for a moment and give you opportunity to do that, and then I'm going to close by offering our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study your word. I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.